This is a moral call right here. This is not about politics. This is about morality. Health emergencies can't wait for us to have some theoretical debate about some better idea that will never, ever come to pass. We are behind every country pretty nearly in Europe in this matter of medical care for our citizens. I'm a physician. That means you have a right to come to my house and conscript me. It means you believe in slavery. All right. Welcome, everyone. This is Medicare for All, the podcast for everybody who needs health care. I am Benjamin Day. I'm Stephanie Nakajima. And we have a really exciting uh, topic today. I we, we do a lot of discussion of like how horrible healthcare is and how the pandemic is ruining everything. But we don't often get to have like a whole episode on victories and winning things. So that <laughs> is like, I'm, I'm all here for that. Today, we are going to talk about an incredible victory in New York. Just this past month, the campaign for New York Health won a majority of co-sponsors in both chambers of the state legislature, a huge majority in the state's assembly and a narrow majority in the state Senate. So the campaign for New York Health is, you know, positioned to have a real victory on Medicare for all at the state level, uh, looking into the near-ish future. And we're going to be talking with two leaders of the movement in New York. We have Ursula Rosam and we have Yuling Koshu. Uh, welcome to both of you. Hello. Yay, it's so good to be here. <laughs> Love this podcast. <laughs> so glad to finally have you guys on. We've been meaning to, you know, hear about more about the New York Health Act for such a long time, and we're finally pulling it together. So I've been I've been really excited about today. So, you know, before we get into the nitty-gritty of this this campaign that has gotten further than any other campaign in the United States for Medicare for All, would y'all just give us, like, the broad strokes? I mean, what is the big picture of where the campaign is now? How many co-sponsors do you have? What what have been the legislative successes? Um, any critical shifts in the landscape? So the New York Health Act has been around in New York since the 90s, um, and it had one vote in the Assembly I think it was 94 or 96, and then like nothing happened. Then after the ACA was implemented, activists in New York regrouped because there's that provision in the ACA that states could establish single payer systems if we wanted to. And so in 2014, the Campaign for New York Health formed, and it's been a, a slow but steady increase in legislative support since then. Right now, we are at, I believe, 83 co-sponsors in the Assembly and 33 in the State Senate, so solid majorities in both houses. Yulang, did I get those numbers right? 82 in the Assembly. And that's 82, 82, and, <laughs> 82 and 33 out of how many? Um, 33 is... <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I'm sorry, <laughs> but it was a solid majority. That's all we need to know. Great. <laughs> yeah, it's a strong majority in the assembly. And I mean, we've had a strong majority in the assembly for several years. And the New York Health Act actually passed in the assembly for four years in a row after our former assembly speaker was scandalized. Um, and there was like this new era of like, we're going to pass the New York Health Act because New York is a progressive state. But then when Democrats got the state Senate, the bill stopped stop moving, stop going anywhere. And we like to think that the after voters elected the supermajority in the state legislature back in November, it was this clear political sign that 
New Yorkers really want bold progressive change in response to this pandemic. Um, and we feel pretty strongly that, that the majorities in both houses are, are related to that. So there's one part of the political landscape we haven't talked about yet. There's this dude sitting in the governor's office, um, uh, Andrew Cuomo. So where has he been on Medicare for All? And uh, is his imminent demise as a politician going to affect the chances of the, the, the New York Health Act? Yeah, we're all counting the days to Governor Hochul, who Kathy Hochul is currently the lieutenant governor. So Andrew Cuomo, he has this like tough guy reputation. Um, and it's kind of ironic that the governor of New York says he supports Medicare for all at the national level. And then you have someone like Chuck Schumer saying, hey, I'm like really into this New York Health Act <laughs> at the state level. It's like they don't actually want to do the things that they have the power to do. So Andrew, I think they planned that out yeah. together, probably. <laughs> so Cuomo has said, like, I dare state legislators to pass this bill and then I'll sign it. So he's kind of being a tough guy about it. Yeah. Is it going to happen? It doesn't seem like it's happening. It seems like scandal after scandal comes out and then all right but he's also a terrible human being and i hope we can get rid of him because that (laughs) at the very least if he if we don't get him impeached or get him to resign um it seems pretty unlikely that he is going to run for governor again and he's rich like i don't understand if you're rich just like go have a nice life (laughs) not immunity to ruin like everybody else's life (laughs) so there's going to be an opportunity probably at least in the next next election cycle, cycle to push all the candidates for governor to really back this bill. Yeah, and we saw and we saw challengers to Cuomo in the last two races super strong on the New York Health Act. Cynthia Nixon and Zephyr Teachout were strong supporters of the New York Health Act. Of course, Green Party candidate Howie Hawkins also running in support of the New York Health Act. Um, and now in New York State, we've seen this really huge tax the rich campaign that had like hundreds of organizations behind it. And I think the best thing, in addition to increased revenues and the several billions of dollars for our state, probably the best thing to come out of that tax the rich campaign is a very organized, strong anti-Cuomo left in New York. Awesome. Um, so tell us a little bit of like, how did you get here? You know, we're, we fancy ourselves activists and organizers. Um, we love like nitty gritty organizing details. Um, I remember it was not easy to actually get that first assembly vote way back in the day. I remember being at hearings all in upstate New York with you, Ursula. I like parachuted into upstate New York to help out as much as I could. Um, tell us a little bit about like the pathway to getting to this uh, like majority in both chambers, which I'm sure was not as easy as it sounds. So yeah, in 2014, there was just a handful (laughs) of us at these public hearings in support of the New York Health Act. But what was really beautiful then was that even though we were small, still at these public hearings, like half a decade ago, it was majority of testifiers were speaking in support of the New York Health Act. And then the campaign for New York Health really focused on a, on a coalition building model and a story-based organizing model so that the coalition partners that we were bringing in over the years were co- uh, organizations that had constituencies that are really impacted by the shortcomings of this healthcare system. So we're talking about organizations that are multi-issue membership organizations that don't just care about healthcare, but also are fighting gentrification, for example, or fighting police brutality. Um, We had organizations get involved that are immigrant rights organizations. 
one of the tools that we used over the years was um, an, an, a story-based outreach survey. So we talked to 2,400 activists over, no, activists talked to 2,400 New Yorkers over the course of two years using this outreach survey. We asked organizations to ask their members about their healthcare experiences using this survey. And we didn't really plan it this way, but um, at the end of the survey process, um, we happened to have another round of hearings on the New York Health Act. And so we were able to invite all of these people who had been sharing their stories with us through this outreach process to come testify. And it was so dramatically different. Mm -hmm. 2014 hearings was like liberals reading statistics. Right. And <laughs> I remember. Yeah. And then the 2019 hearings was just like hours and hours of heart-wrenching personal testimony. So I think that that outreach process of, you know, re asking people to share their stories really made a huge difference to build the coalition over the years. And other stuff happened too along the way. Elaine, do you want to fill in anything that I missed? Um, I think one, like another avenue of how it resonates, the New York Health Act resonates, is that we talk about it as bigger than health policy, like Ursula mentioned. And one big piece recently is that the New York Health Act is, is you know, it goes beyond what happens in the doctor's office um, and in the hospitals. And it's really fundamentally changes, for example, Cuomo's austerity politics. And it's a form of wealth redistribution um, and like removing the root source of wealth extraction from especially our most vulnerable communities. Uh, so I think that's really resonated with a lot of folks to talk about it that way. And one kind of unusual ally, I know you all have actually done some business outreach as well. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, we have more than 500 businesses statewide in support of the New York Health Act. Hey. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and we're finding, you know, we've had hundreds and hundreds of conversations with businesses all over the state and most of them can't afford health insurance for themselves and their own families. Right. Um, and under the New York Health Act, they find that they can afford it for them themselves, their employees and their employees' families for less money, right? Um, and they all want to give their employees health insurance. They just can't afford it. So it's been really great to be able to have those conversations with the business owners and worker cooperatives. That's so fascinating. I think that a lot of uh, groups are starting to really look at how can they reach out more to business communities. Uh, definitely here in Massachusetts, that's happening as well. Can you tell us a little bit about how you did outreach to businesses? I mean, did you do a presentation showing like this is how much you would pay under Medicare for all versus, you know, and then like uh, trying to figure out an average of how much people or businesses are paying now? And how did you get a foot in the door? There have been a couple different ways that we've done it and it's really evolved. Um, the there was a group of activists with the campaign for New York Health down in Ithaca, for example, and they created their own outreach questionnaire that they used to interview business owners. So just really asking open-ended questions of what are some of the challenges you're experiencing accessing healthcare for yourself now? What would your ideal healthcare system look like? And so I know that these the activists um, down in Ithaca recruited several dozen businesses just in this way. And then they were talking to people that they knew in their community. So it was very much like relational organizing, starting with the people that you have access to. Mm -hmm. And this, this kind of story-driven approach, it, it might sound quaint to people, but I think it's really, it, it leads to kind of what you were saying. It leads to the people who are actually being impacted by the healthcare system the most 
kind of taking more of a leadership role in the movement as opposed to like relying on health policy experts to like lead our movement and to like explain to all of us how, you know, we need to be making this moral change as opposed to, you know, patients and community members and family members and uh, small businesses who are being destroyed by the healthcare system, having them kind of take the leadership role. And it was, I think, around the same time that you all made this shift towards story-based organizing that we had, we were doing the same thing at Healthcare Now. And it, it really has made, I think, a huge difference. It's a lot of imitating of things that are working in other places. Like we adapted our outreach survey, for example, from the Vermont Worker Center and put people first in Pennsylvania right, right. because we saw the brilliant organizing they were doing using some of these really simple outreach tools. There were definitely things along the way that like if we had to repeat, we might do a little bit differently. But yeah, we, we often talk about having to de-expertify the movement because we're all experts on our own experiences with the healthcare system. Yeah, and the more deeply you're affected by it, the more likely you are to actually spend your energy and time fighting for, you know, yeah. Medicare for all. Yeah, and this survey forces you to do an outrageous thing, which is to actually listen to people <laughs> first before ta yeah. talking at them about the healthcare system, uh, which turns out to be a powerful organizing tool. <laughs> I had done several of these like uh, story of self storytelling trainings over my over the years as an activist and really doing our survey like maybe six years into just being involved in social movements is how I finally figured out like, oh, I do have a story. It's just, a, you know, no one had really asked me the right questions in the past. Yep. I think we all went through the same process too. Yeah. So switching now to a question about opposition. So because of your success as a movement in New York State and being sort of so dangerously far along the path, you're also, I, I believe New York, maybe California also, but New York is really one of the only states that has an organized opposition to the Medicare for All movement. So, you know, how has that opposition formed and how have you combated it. So first off, I just got to say the opposition is dumb. <laughs> we don't like them. <laughs> it's the insurance. Maybe I talked them up a little bit too much. Their social media presence in New York is horrible. <laughs> They're always running these ads about how single payer health care is going to raise your taxes and it's going to be so horrible. And like they will get like dozens, if not hundreds of comments from people <laughs> saying like, you lie, this healthcare system sucks, stop trying to maintain this exploitative status quo. So it's <laughs> actually very funny to see the opposition's social media presence um, because it's so bad. Um, and it's funny because they're so- If people want to look it up, who, what is the name of the opposition group? Oh, I was always taught like, don't say your opponent's name, but oh, okay. the realities of single payer is what they're named in New York state. And, you know, if you look at the members, it's all of the big insurance companies and like the health plan association of New York state, for example, just don't like, don't follow their page. Don't like, that's don't, so funny. Just, just look at it. I feel like Twitter has sort of like turned this whole like, you know, thing about not maiming your opposition on its head because sometimes you can get Twitter, like ratioed, you can get Twitter ratioed or you can get like uh, infamous on Twitter for, for example, being a coalition of health insurers fighting single payer. Well, they've definitely <laughs> been ratioed by single payer supporters. I just ignored your advice and I went to their website. And I will note that... <laughs> 
when you create a WordPress website, the default like icon is the W for WordPress, and it's still there. They haven't made their own like icon. <laughs> so I told you they're horrible. Well, this is kind of disappointing. I was hoping for like a, a David and Goliath story where we had a Goliath who could at least make a website for themselves. <laughs> but that does not mean the opposition is not powerful. It, I, this just particular organization, I'm assuming, is not super effective as they'd hoped. No, oh, they're extremely powerful, and we know that the private insurance companies have, like, literally and financially made a killing during the pandemic, and they're going to be using that money to fight against us. Um, I think it's always important to say that they have a financial incentive in maintaining the system to preempt any conversation. Like, if they put out any kinds of lies, I think it's critical for us to say, well, first of all, like they're making billions from the status quo before we go into countering any of their lies. Because like when you drive down the highway near me, there you'll see like at least five billboards saying healthcare is a human right from the private insurance companies. And they're definitely co-opting our language right now. Mm. So we have to be really clear mm -hmm. about wow. what they're trying to do. That's so interesting. Everyone is co-opting our language, even the insurance now. But I guess that's a sign of success, right? Even when you've kind of won the messaging <laughs> battleground, they realize they can't <laughs> on that ground anymore. Yeah, and what they try to do in New York is they try to say, wait a second, like, we only have 5% uninsured. Like, why would we try to upend the entire system? Let's try something new. Like, let's give some public subsidies so that more people can buy our private insurance, right? Um, and so then we have to look at all the ways that even that has failed. Right. Like, I think that the most heart wrenching story of the failure of things like a public subsidies to private insurance in New York is a lot of people know the story of the DeNoyer family. Right. And so Danny DeNoyer lost his life when he couldn't afford a, a copay to Fidelis Care. And so he had this Fidelis Care plan, their subsidiary of Centene. He had this Fidelis Care plan that he was buying on the health insurance marketplace exchange. These are heavily subsidized private plans. So it's public money going to private plans. And they're still churning people off their insurance, kicking them off their insurance plans. And, you know, this young man lost his life because he couldn't afford life-saving medication. So more public money to private insurance companies is a garbage idea. And we, we just can't like let that be the future of healthcare. Yeah. Private health care, even if it's subsidized publicly, will always have an incentive to gatekeep care and deny at every point. And so it's not about, yeah, I mean, it just that, that story is a perfect demonstration about how it's not about just getting coverage. It's about, you know, cradle to grave guaranteed care for sure. So um, a lot of people might think you've got a majority in both the House and the Senate. Therefore, there is going to be an immediate passage of the, the New York Health Act um, that's going to pass through the House and the Senate. Maybe it'll go to the governor's desk where you'll get hit a roadblock. But the, the last step, as I'm sure many people understand, is going to be the absolute hardest because, well, I don't, I don't even need to tell the because because you can tell us the because in, in New York. <laughs> but, you know, a lot of, of co-sponsors sign on, I think, not with the level of commitment that, like, that's like, now I can vote on this in the face of like overwhelming opposition from the healthcare industry. So there's probably a lot of more organizing uh, ahead for you all. 
where actually is the next step now that you've hit these majorities even and it's i i think it's a very a slim-ish majority in the senate side like how do you win this thing the same way that we organize people <laughs> and coalition partners we have to organize our co-sponsors to be loud and vocal supporters and in the november election back here in new york we had several really, really progressive new legislators come in to the state house from all around the state. So it's a really exciting time. Just a couple nights, you know, some of the legislators were camping out for um, for taxing the rich outside of the governor's office. That's just an example of how badass some of our new electives are right now in New York. <laughs> and so that's really our next our next step is getting a lot of, maybe some people are familiar with this um, graphic called the spectrum of allies, where you always wanna be moving your supporters from passive to active supporters. Um, so that's what we're gonna be doing here in New York because nothing in the, the state legislature moves unless it's moved by the Speaker of the Assembly, who's Carl Heasty, or the leader of the Senate, who's currently Andrea Stewart-Cousins. And so for them to bring the bill to a vote, they really need to be hearing from the other legislators who they represent. So it's like, you know, if I'm in Syracuse, New York, there's really no point in me calling the Speaker Heasty every day down in the Bronx. You know, so wherever we are in New York, we have to be pushing our legislators to be talking to their leadership and to be organizing themselves to be really vocal and outspoken. And you, Lang, you've been strategizing a lot on this. Do you want to add to that? Um, yeah, we're, I mean, to show the force of the statewide movement and how robust and how diverse it is, we are working with partner organizations to organize like kind of themed weeks of action on, you know, single payer, how it relates to mental health and why people who care about mental health justice care about single payer healthcare, um, LGBTQ justice, why it's immigrant justice, uh, why decarceration is part of protecting public health and related to single payer healthcare specifically, um, and housing and all of that. So I think that's really cool to be able to see this cross movement solidarity and um, kind of political education between the movements uh, about why not just housing is healthcare, but why housing advocates want single payer healthcare specifically. Um, so I think that's super fun and amazing. And, and really speaks also to, you know, um, how you're talking about coalitions with partners who are multi-issue organizations um, and how you keep those relationships strong and active on the issue of single payer um, is finding exactly how they intersect with everything else. Sorry to interrupt you. Yeah. And this is something, this is a conversation. Yeah. And I think this is all, I mean, it, it really paints a picture that we, we talk with our activists a lot about how a lot of people kind of see co-sponsorship as like the goal. And it's like, all right, once <laughs> we get a legislator as a co-sponsor, it's like we've, we've, we're done in this yeah. district. Now move on to the next district where we don't have a co-sponsor. Um, but that is so far from the truth. Like to, to get a win on this, to actually vote it through on a real bill with the, the financing and everything, um, you're going to need a lot of those co-sponsors to be actually leaders. Um, and I was actually, I don't know if you all watched the the press release for the new national uh, HR 1976. And a lot of those legislators who co-sponsored the bill were telling their healthcare stories. And I think that's where you're getting to like a leadership level. It And it it was interesting. You Ursula, you were just talking about like doing the same things we do with activists, but with, with 
with reps, getting them to tell their story about why is Medicare for All so important to them. And that starts moving them into kind of a leadership position and they start prioritizing it more. Um, but I don't think ar around the country, we should not be like leaving that part until the very end. <laughs> um, I think we should start be, start turning our co-sponsors into leaders and working more and more with them as we go along. Uh, so it's not like everyone is left over now to become a leader at the end when we need a vote on Exactly. From yeah. I think there's a huge difference uh, in commitment between jumping on as a co-sponsor and hitching your political fortune to Medicare for all and it being um, sort of a non-negotiable thing that, you know, you, you live or die by <laughs> politically. So. Absolutely. And what I really like about the Campaign for New York Health and our coalition is that it, like, the theory of change is to build a long-term mass movement. And, like, even, yes, we want to pass the New York Health Act, but once we pass it, and it, it was intentional to pass it based on the human rights principles it was built upon, and then go through the process of, like, getting it through the budget um, and being explicit about the financial mechanisms, that once we pass it, that's, like, when the really hard shit comes. Um, that we make sure we implement it for the people that we built it for, right? Um, so that's, yeah, the importance of having a long-term sustainable movement. Yeah, that's different from kind of the Vermont model, right? Like in, <laughs> in Vermont, they had kind of basically passed a, a bill saying, all right, we're going to implement single-payer health care, you know, three or four years from now, but we're not going to say how we're going to do it. We're going to have a process whereby, you know, the benefits are created and then the financing is created. So they kind of created a structure for a future fight. And New York has, has kind of decided to do it the other way around, that we're going to front load all those decisions and fight for all the, you know, progressive financing coverage that truly covers everyone up front, right? And then build the movement mm -hmm. that can actually win that build. Anything could go wrong in that process. <laughs> Not to be pessimistic. And we learned a lot from Vermont, too, because we a lot of the opposition will say, well, they couldn't do it in Vermont, so you can't do it in New York. But it's it's two different states and two different times. And so our bill talks about um, progressive financing, for example, which is something we had to learn from from the Vermont experience. Um, and I just think, you know, what you what we are what we've been talking about for me is reminding me that we haven't, we, none of us have ever won single payer healthcare before, right? So we're all learning from each other. You guys are blazing the path. Only for people 65 and older have we won. And by we, I mean, we're not us in, personally, <laughs> <laughs> but as a country. Exactly. And that's why it's been, we've been drawing a lot on lessons from other countries, uh, how other countries have done it, because that's all we have right now. <laughs> and uh, absolutely, it's, you know, um, trial and error for us in this new context. Mm -hmm. And just in terms of learning from other countries, I really want to shout out the really awesome video from Healthcare Now about um, the origins of Medicare and Medicaid in our country and how the racism in this country like led us to this uber capitalist pay or die system. Um, and it's I think it's just it's such a lesson that the things that are first designed to marginalize people of color in our country end up hurting everyone. Um, and which is why I think that this fight has to be an anti-racist fight that really prioritizes the experiences of communities of color, because ultimately, it'll 
it'll end up helping everyone. But we know that the racism of the system has created the system where all of our lives can be exploited for, for profit. Um, but yeah, shout out to that really awesome video you all have made because I learned so much from that. All right. We'll have to put a link in the show notes now. <laughs> we did have to Sorry. read a really academic book to get to all of that. <laughs> so that the, it's made a five minute video is really a service. <laughs> Written by a Canadian. Written by a we Canadian. a Canadian to point out exactly. the racist origins of our healthcare system. <laughs> exactly. No, but thank you for that shout out. It was, I'm glad that somebody watched it. <laughs> um, so Final question, although, you know, it's been so great to talk to y'all and I think there's so much more we could learn. Um, what are some key lessons that, you know, activists in other states who are sort of looking to New York, you know, as we've talked about, who are paving the way on state single payer? Um, what are some, some key lessons that, that those activists in other states could take away from the New York experience? Um, and that could just be anything from, you know, where you've gotten so far or like, mistakes you've made along the way or lessons you've learned about, you know, what works and what doesn't? I mean, I know that's also a big question. But <laughs> well, I think something that can be easy to forget, like it's easy to get caught up in the electoral politics and like the co-sponsorship. And it can be easy to forget that this is a long-term fight. And like we were, like we've been talking about, right, building the leadership, not only in our legislators, but also in the grassroots and advocates, I think that can be easy to forget. And so the story-based work is something to remember and to use as like the foundation of all the work. Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, there's two ways to kind of think about organizing goals. Like, what do we want to achieve in the next year or two? You can think, all right, we want to get three more co-sponsors. Or you can think about, we want, you know, five more leaders in, you know, X number of districts, which is more of a base building, movement building orientation towards, you know, setting your own goals. And I think New York has been much better about that than a lot of other states. So I've really learned a lot about that from y'all. Ursula, any other takeaways from you that, that you think are applicable to others? And of course, not all states are the same as New York, um, but New York is, is bigger than a lot of countries that have Medicare for all. So <laughs> it would be a major victory if we could get it there. Including the country I'm in right now, Denmark. Right. <laughs> yeah, this is like, I think very similar to what Yu Ling said. And I think all of the great lessons somehow um, relate to the, the teachings of Adrian Marie Brown, um, which is move, you have to move at the pace of trust and the what you pay attention to grows. Um, and so, you know, when we're doing our outreach and our coalition building, really paying attention to the people that we want to build up as leaders. And there's no shortcuts in organizing. And so, you know, we might want to pass the bill this year, um, but we have to be paying attention to our coalition partners and who are we developing as leaders in the long run? Because things don't always work out like you want right away. And if we're able to build the strong base, we know that we'll get across the finish line eventually. Do you mean we shouldn't just force the vote without having done all the movement building first? <laughs> <laughs> I exactly. We should not force a vote if we have not done the movement building work first. Very succinctly put. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Um, this is really, and I think we're going to definitely be like all eyes on New York. Um, we'll be 
watching to see what y'all do. Let us know how we can help. It's like a national network to support your work. We're still also making some great strides with the national legislation, and we I'm sure we'll have you back soon. So thanks for joining. Me.